According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth. Turn with me one more time to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, I say one more time, for one more episode in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. I do not anticipate teaching the entirety of this episode in one session. But this is our final episode in Luke chapter 10, as uh, the verses here bring us down to the end of the chapter and then move us on to Luke chapter 11 for uh, for the next uh, number of episodes. We're actually in a portion in the Harmony of the Gospels that is dominated by the Gospel of Luke, uh, material that is unique to Luke. So if you're going to try to find the, the Good Samaritan in Matthew or Mark or John, give it up. It's not there. If you're going to try to find uh, the Mary and Martha story, it's not in those other Gospels. It's only found in the Gospel of Luke. So many of the other things in here, uh, the, the prodigal son, other, other stories are unique to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, this portion of the Gospel has a couple of different names, but uh, it really focuses on this journey to Jerusalem. Uh, it focuses on what happened at the conclusion of his Galilean ministry and as he made his way to the cross. And, and as such, it, it involves a, a Judean portion. It involves a, a trip across the Jordan River to the eastern side of the Jordan River to the Perean region what today is known as the, the uh, Kingdom of Jordan, and, uh, and so forth. Um, basically, from chapter 9 through chapter oh, 18, 19 or so, this section of Luke is, uh, is unique to Luke's Gospel. All right, for this morning, though, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, I tell you, we got easy time of it, back to back. I mean, who, who's never heard of the Good Samaritan before, right? I think the, the recent classes in the Good Samaritan have been pretty simple. And then, uh, likewise, Mary and Martha. I mean, this is a story uh, that's very well known. In fact, I think if there's a Christian housewife or woman that doesn't know the story of Mary and Martha, uh, you know, I, th I think everybody knows this story. So it should go pretty quickly for us. I do hope, though, to bring out some details and some information that would otherwise not be clear because there is uh, some vital angelic conflict application to be made in particular if we allow ourselves to miss the point, if we allow ourselves to be caught up in temporal life, we uh, lose out on the better thing. And Mary had chosen the better thing. And that's what uh, we're going to learn in the process of this paragraph. All right. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we're all uh, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, empowered by God to study eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful that we are the objects of your grace, that we are walking day by day in your plan. Today is no different than yesterday. We are in your plan day by day, moment by moment. We thank you for that. Father, thank you for the freedom our land enjoys to assemble together where we have the privilege and opportunity to study the living and abiding word of God, to live out our faith in the freedom that we enjoy in this nation. We thank you now for this time. Set aside distractions. Give us concentration upon your truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Somebody wanted to know if I was going to make any comments this morning about something political that might have happened yesterday. I'm curious, though, at all the men we have this morning. I mean, did it just like that? Everyone's out of work and we're just going to church. Okay, I guess so. 
Man. No, we're happy to have them in here as well. We renamed it. It used to be ladies' class years and years ago. We renamed it to the family class because there were quite a few men that could make it. and We didn't want them to feel out of place. All right. Well, ladies, this one's uh, really uh, for you. This, uh, this story of Mary and Martha uh, connects in, in a lot of different ways. So let's take a look at it. Uh, as they were traveling along, he entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted. We're going to focus on that word in, in a lot of ways. Um, not because it's a particularly biblical word, but because it grabs our attention in this context. Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. So she asks the question, she answers it herself, and then she tells him what to do. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. And that's uh, by the time we come to the conclusion of this, I think you'll understand how she started by being distracted and ended by being worried and bothered. So what did the distracted do? What was the point in being distracted? You're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. All right. Episode nine in the uh, life of Christ, uh, harmony of the gospels. Episode nine in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus Christ is uh, a little bit misnamed because uh, what we ought to do, if I can get my little marker up and run in here, I know I installed it. It doesn't matter. Um, what we can do is rename this. Huh, not going to work. We can cross off the Mary. Because <laughs> it's not Mary's hospitality. It's Martha's hospitality. All right. So it's a little bit misnamed in that respect. Uh, he entered a village and it doesn't say women named Mary and Martha welcomed him. Martha welcomed him. This is one of those one-party invitations where the other party to the household didn't, uh, didn't know that the invitation was being extended. All of a sudden, oh my goodness, what are they doing here? I didn't invite them. All right. Then we'll focus on this. Really, there's four points of study we want to get out of this. We start with Martha. A certain woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. We glean here out of verse 38. Now, this is our introduction to Martha. Uh, we've not yet encountered her. We've not yet encountered this particular Mary. We're going to give you a little bit of a survey on the Marys in uh, in the New Testament. Minimum of six, I think seven. Uh, but there's different Marys in the New Testament. Uh, there are only there's only one Martha, however. Although there is a legitimate debate as to whether or not we should find two Marthas. I think it's one and the same between here and the Martha we have uh, over in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. So we'll spotlight them here in a moment. But we start with Martha, our introduction to her from the New Testament. Martha is not a Greek name. It's an Aramaic name uh, that simply gets brought across into the, the Greek uh, language uh, as a transliteration rather than a translation so in the greek you have m-a-r-t-h-a martha how about that mu alpha rho theta alpha martha 
3136 in the Strong's Concordance, but it's not a Greek name. It's an Aramaic name. And in the Aramaic, it looks like that, M-A-R-T-A. And the Aramaic Mar means Lord. In fact, it is um, even in some respects comparable to the Greek Kurios, to the Greek Lord. Um, And uh, in a lot of ways, well, Marta, then you give it a feminine ending. And uh, rather than master or lord, you have mistress. You have the mistress of the house. You have the sovereign, the, the feminine sovereign of a, uh, of a domain. And this is uh, part of what we'll look at this morning in terms of uh, the expectations uh, for women in their design, in their uh, created state, what their um, functions are designed to be how it was they were limited to that role in uh, Judaism, and how it was they were lifted out of that limitation by Jesus in his earthly ministry, setting the table for the realities of what we enjoy today in the blessings of uh, males and females being one body in Christ, and uh, in, in so many ways the elevation of women from what the uh, practices of rabbinic Judaism had uh, diminish them uh, too, and, and that will come up to them. I don't know how far we're going to get today, actually, because I have a lot of um, excerpts I want to bring to your attention, some reading and some things that are probably overdue, but this is a good opportunity to share them with you this morning to, uh, to highlight some of these aspects. So we're introduced to Martha. Is she the same Martha as uh, John chapter 11? Well, you know, you can make a case for it. You could dispute it. Um, let's look at John 11 and then John 12. Because the Martha in John 11 and 12 has a sister whose name is Mary. All right. And they, the two of them have a brother named Lazarus. And he's the Lazarus that's brought back from the dead in, in John 11, the great uh, I am the resurrection and the life chapter. And so uh, a certain man in John 11, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And so here's a Mary and a Martha. Interestingly enough, now, we're told it was the Mary, not to confuse her with any other Marys in the New Testament, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Okay, So you can lock in on which Mary we're talking about here. We're not told, oh, and it was the Martha who was so busy with her dinner distractions that she missed the point in Luke chapter 11. Okay? That absence of note here is, is significant. Now, it's an argument from silence, yet the, the John in his gospel, written decades after the other gospels, uh, is making a point here to pinpoint which Mary this is. And he doesn't make the point to pinpoint which Martha this is when it would have been very easy for him to do so, to say these were the Mary and the Martha that were spoken of you know in, in, this, other, in this other episode. He doesn't do that. He does point to Mary with another episode. And uh, and so there's elements there. Likewise, the brother Lazarus, there's no clue to Lazarus and his existence in Luke chapter 10. We have Mary, we have Martha. Uh, There's no reference to Lazarus. Um, Another aspect, the village of Bethany. Okay, the village of Bethany is so close to Jerusalem and so close to uh, when he when he does arrive in Bethany in John chapter 11, he is he is going to be crucified within within hours all right it's very one of the last places he goes one of the last places he visits uh before the cross see 
that's a little bit awkward for Luke chapter 10. Because in Luke chapter 10, he's still some time away from Jerusalem. He's nowhere near close. So either this was a roundabout wandering, kind of like Israel's wandering in the wilderness, or I think the more natural explanation is this is a different Martha with a sister named Mary. Okay? Not all that weird if you take a population sample of, of Israel and ask, okay, how many of you have a sister named Mary? You're going to get a pretty significant population. And so uh, I, my thinking at this point is that this particular Mary and Martha are not the sisters of Lazarus that are ministered to in Luke chapter 11. But uh, as I said, there's arguments for it. There's arguments against it. And no one can prove it. <laughs> from the text until such time as uh, I suppose we're face to face with the Lord and we actually get to meet all these folks. Um, anyway, this is Martha. Now, what are we told? She welcomed him into her home. That's an awful lot of words for a single verb. Uh, Mary hupodecamide Jesus. Hupodecamide, H-U-P-O-D-E-C-H-O-M-A-I. And that one verb is our verb of welcome, hospitality. And that's used a number of times, four times in the, in the text, uh, three by Luke and one by James. The three by Luke are two in his gospel and one in the book of Acts. So you have Luke 10.38, Luke 19.6, Acts 17.7, and James 2. 25. Now, decamai is a verb of receiving, but it's more uh, of a thing in terms of receiving uh, items, receiving packages, receiving deliveries, taking possession of something would be decamai, right? Uh, in fact, I just was looking at the FedEx website and put in my tracking number, and there's a package that will be arriving sometime today. Okay, It was in Nashville yesterday. It was in Austin this morning. It'll be on a truck, and, and I will receive a package. See, that's decamai. Take off the hoopo. You just have decamai to receive a package. But the compound here, hoopo, and in the sense of under, um, under your roof, under your care, under your protection, under your authority. Uh, the idea is, is that you are bringing them in in your, uh, in your domain, under your roof, under your authority, under your protection, care, and provision. Everything that's, uh, that a guest is entitled to uh, in terms of proper hospitality. And so that's what we see here. And I think it is significant that Mary was not a party to the invitation. Martha was the only party to the invitation. Martha is the one who hupodecamide Jesus. And uh, she's all been out of shape that Mary is not, uh, you know, fixing food or scrubbing dishes or whatever was going on there in the, in the, uh, in the kitchen, whatever the preparations in, involve. Okay? And, you know, I, I'm... I'm, I'm gender challenged, so when it comes to hosting hospitality functions and whatever, I, to me, you know, uh, welcoming someone into your home is, is, a, is a pretty simple thing. Hey, come on in. Glad you're here. You know, and can I get you a drink or you know whatever? It's not, it's not a process. It's not a, uh, a production, which is why God gave me a wife. 
because in the female mindset, it is a process. It is a production. There are preparations. There is work. There are expectations. There are uh, things that need to be done. Anyway, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm just going to stay with the Bible. And we can see the sampling of the verses, though. We can leave Luke 10, get over to Luke 19. See another one of these examples, Luke 19.6. In this instance, it's Zacchaeus, the uh, tax collector. And uh, not just any old tax collector, the chief tax collector. And uh, he had a hard time seeing with the crowds because he was a short guy. In verse 3, small in stature, ran on ahead, climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. You know, and all the excitement when a celebrity is coming through town and all the excitement about a rally and going to see him and all this neat stuff. So Jesus came to the place. He looked up. <laughs> okay. Now you can imagine there's crowds and crowds and crowds around. But who is it that Jesus locks in on? Yeah, the little guy up in the tree. Not only that, not just that he spotted him with his earthly eyes. He knew him by name with prophetic uh, utterance. It's not omniscient here. It's not that God the Son knows everything. It's that the prophet, Jesus Christ, was aware of those that he was going to be encountering on this day for his hospitality. So he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. I must stay at your house. I hope in the process of, of teaching this, this whole episode, that we will examine aspects of hospitality more in terms of its spiritual function, in terms of its work assignment, uh, the fruit that can be born and should be born, the um, ministry open doors that come about in a venue of hospitality. Ministry that... Uh, cannot take place outside of that venue. Ministry that's unique to that venue. And it's more than just simply, uh, you know, a, a fun thing, a nice thing. You know, do, do you like spending time with people? Is it fun to, uh, to, to visit, to, to go over to someone's house or have someone over to your house or to share a meal or to, uh, to have a church picnic like we had last month? You think, Wow. Those are really fun. Okay? And they are. Birthday parties are fun. Other things. Let's, for the moment, all right, chunk all of that. Because the plan of God is not about how much fun we're supposed to be having. All right? And start thinking in terms of capacity that an unbeliever cannot do. Because an unbeliever can throw a party. An unbeliever can uh, host people in their homes. An unbeliever can demonstrate hospitality. An unbeliever can throw a dinner, can have people over. Let's start studying these passages from the perspective of born-again believers and what can be accomplished in the plan of God. Because when Jesus Christ says, Today I must stay at your house. This is the language of have to. This is the language of work assignment. Jesus Christ has a work of service he must accomplish on this day, and the Father has already made it clear that his work of service is going to be in the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. This, uh, <laughs> there's so much you can teach out of this, and we have this coming up. It's, we haven't gotten here yet in the life of Christ. This is coming up, so we'll study it. Um, but this is one of those things where uh, 
you know, we, you raise your children, you teach them, you know, they want to go to a friend's house and play or whatever they want to do. And you say, well, okay, yeah, um, that that's, that's good. But uh, listen here, uh, you know, Johnny or make up a, a name, um, you know, Billy, uh, you haven't been invited. See, you, you, you can't just go over to someone's house. You have to be invited. So. Uh, you know, what do you think we ought to do? Maybe, maybe you could extend an invitation and invite your friend over to our house. Maybe next time around, they will extend an invitation to you. But you can't just go without an invitation. You can't just storm into somebody's house or, or what have you. And so then little Billy either figures that out or says, you know, goes to his friend and says, you have to invite me over to your house. <laughs> My dad said, you have to invite me over to your house. No, that's not what Dad said. That's what you heard Dad say and what you wanted Dad to say. Well, now here's Jesus saying to Zacchaeus, I have to, I must, today I must stay at your house. And yet, I think we understand the context there. And Zacchaeus has a like-mindedness and an agreement that if this is something that the Christ must do, then he's going to be a fellow worker in that assignment. So he hurried, came down, and hupodecamide received him gladly received him gladly and i think that there also grabs our attention because the language of have to in verse five gives way to the language of want to in verse six he received him gladly not grudgingly not under compulsion not because he had to but because he wanted to that zacchaeus was pleased to say you know what this is my assignment i have to do this but above and beyond all that I want to do this. See, I want to do this. And so you turn the have-tos into the want-tos when you become an active participant in the plan of God for your life. All right, over to Acts. Acts chapter 17. Same author, different book. Luke part 2 in the Gospel of Acts. 17.7. And this is uh, the... Ministry of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy on the second missionary journey as they went from Philippi to Thessalonica and uh, hmm, stirred up some trouble. And in fact, they were having such fruitful ministry that the Jews became jealous. We're told in verse 5, the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob. See, anytime you need a mob, they're pretty handy. You'll know where to find them because they're not actually uh, profitably engaged in any legitimate work uh, pursuits. Uh, they're just lingering and lurking and available and um, grab some wicked men from the marketplace and form a mob. And uh, that's one way of getting things done. See, I don't recommend it, but that's, that was their practice. And uh, set the city in an uproar. Set the city in an uproar. Attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Now, why were they so upset with Jason? Well, we find out. They did not find them. They began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. See, if you don't get the person you want, take whoever you can get and force them to talk. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason, see, here's why. Jason has welcomed them. Hupodecami hospitality, given them shelter, given them provision, given them grace supply for their ministry. 
Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decree of Caesar. Hmm. Their uh, religious practices are not compatible with our secular law. What are we going to do about it? So they stirred up the crowd again. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble this morning. I'm not even trying. I just read through all this and... Hmm. All right. Stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released. And this pledge, this is like a cash bond. This is a surety bond in our legal system. This is like posting bail. Under normal circumstances, if you're arrested by legitimate uh, courts and officers of the court, uh, they will secure your release and you will promise to return for trial. Uh, they call that bail or, or posting bond and so forth. And, and when you pay that money to the court system, what you're promising is that you will appear, that you will come back. And, and then as you do so, your bond is refunded, returned, you know, minus whatever fees, court costs and what have you. Uh, this is a little bit kind of the opposite of that. This isn't money paying promising you'll come back this is money paying promising you're not coming back <laughs> right you're going away and you're staying away see and if paul and, and sylvanus come back jason loses his cash bond he loses his pledge so um which is one of the reasons why uh, timothy got his first training ministry here they he was not listed in the uh, in the cash bond and he was able the young man was able to sneak back into town under the radar and and teach some more Bible classes, and keep, keep things going. Any event, all of that is to illustrate verse 7, where we have hupodecami, the hospitality. But uh, notice, though, in this context, we saw in with Zacchaeus, the hospitality was went from a have-to to a want-to, and there were some, some things there. Recognition of the Father's work assignment was a component also. Here, we observe that the hospitality may... Uh, involve uh, some consequences. There might be a price to pay for that hospitality. There might be um, uh, collateral damage or, or effects because of your hospitality directed towards uh, certain folks, as in the case here. I think that goes along well with Hebrews where we're told uh, um, in another application of hospitality. Let's grab that on the way to James. Um it doesn't use hupodecami, but the the um, context is pretty similar. In Hebrews 13, where we're told to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, it's not the same verb, but it's a similar concept, so I don't mind highlighting it. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. See, now, what's the point of this? Is the point the entertainment? No, the point is... Um, being tested and being found faithful in the evaluation of God and the things that we do, uh, not only what we do, but why we do it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And remember these guys that were in prison were in prison for their faith. They were in prison uh, identifying, naming the name of Jesus Christ. And so by remembering the prisoners and associating with them, uh, evidencing your uh, like-mindedness, What you're basically doing is putting your own neck on the line because the same authorities that have them incarcerated might look at you and say, well, what's your connection with this guy here? Are you one of those 
Christian people too? And then what are you going to say? Oh, no, no, I, I, I don't know the man. <laughs> yeah, just uh, call me Peter here. I, I, I never met the guy, right? Who are you talking about? So, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. So that's an aspect of hospitality I think we need to focus on there as well. Now, finally, over to James 2.25, our last use of hupodecami. In the same way also was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she hupodecamied the messengers and sent them out by another way. She faced a real risk, and yet she stayed obedient. She knew what the will of the Lord was. She was a blessing to the Jewish spies in their uh, espionage mission there in Jericho. And so she welcomed them. She hosted them. She fed them. She protected them. She lied to her own government on their behalf. And uh, we're told here that there was an experiential justification uh, in the outworking of her faith uh, during that episode. All right, so this is Martha. And Martha um, identifies. She knows who the Christ is. Let me get back to Luke 10 now. He is... um, Entering, he's on his way to Jerusalem, traveling by, but he's entering into this village, and she realizes that this is her opportunity. Her opportunity to minister to his needs. Now, before I get to the next point, we start looking at Mary here in a moment. Um, Don't forget what context this verse shows up in, because the idea of Mary, uh, of Martha rather, welcoming him into her home has to be evaluated from the standpoint of the first part of this chapter here, where Jesus is sending his disciples forth and giving them instructions for how to handle it when they hit town. What should they expect to find when they reach a new town? And so when he sends out the 70 or the 72, he sends them out two by two in pairs. And and this is where he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says... um, Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. So wherever you go, there may or may not be grace-oriented believers prepared to glorify Jesus Christ through their hospitality. If a man of peace is there, maybe he will be, maybe he won't. But if he is, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. In other words, you're not going to encounter believers with a doctrinal capacity to support what you're doing. Or maybe you will. If you encounter a believer with a grace perspective, the divine viewpoint perspective, who understands the, um, the priority of your ministry as unto the Lord, and they want to become a partaker in that ministry through hospitality, through grace giving, through prayer support, through whatever form or fashion, all right. Understand what you've done there is you've just paired up ministry with ministry. And that's what Christ is emphasizing here. Stay in that house. In other words, that house and no other. Stay in that house. Your entire time in that city will be in that one place, in that one house. In other words, you're not going to bounce from place to place to place. You have identified the geographic will for your life in that in that city. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. In other words, 
as he was sending out these 70, these 72, they were engaged in his preaching ministry, the evangelism ministry and so forth. And the, the folks on the hospitality side of things, they were engaged in the very same ministry. It's just that theirs was coming from the standpoint of hospitality and finances and food provision and so forth. The uh, logistical grace supply. So this is, uh, this is what we have here in, in light of Martha's invitation now. Welcoming, welcoming him into her home. And he would be a resident there for the duration of his time in this village. See, if it's Bethany or whatever village it happens to be. And her blessing, Martha's blessing, that's what she's about to lose track of. Martha's blessing is to provide for him, to support him, to support his disciples and whoever else is with him here. So that while he's engaged in this city, these other uh, details are taken care of. Now, she's going to lose track of that because her priorities are going to get uh, wrapped up in herself instead of in him. All right, so that's the backdrop there for Martha. Now, secondly, let's look at Mary. Martha had a sister called Mary. And boy, I chewed on this and chewed on this and chewed on this. I'm not sure I figured anything out. Um, there's basically two expressions. Anima is the word for name, and anamadzo is the verb to name. Uh, Kaleo is the verb to call, and uh, you've got different nouns and adjectives from that. And basically, any time in the text, you can introduce a person, and you can do so either way. You can introduce, uh, you know, a certain man was there named Fred, all right? Or a certain person was there called John, say, either named or called. And in some respects, it's, maybe I'm splitting hairs, but in some respects, it's just a matter of author's preference. Certain authors prefer uh, to use named. Other authors prefer to use called. Some will use them both if he's named Simon but called Peter, for example, things like that. Um, so the, the two terms can be used interchangeably or they can be used with preference one to another. It is startling here that there is a contrast. Mary or Martha is named Martha and Mary is called Mary. And I don't know if that's significant. <laughs> I just observe it and say, hmm. There is a certain woman named Martha. And she had a sister called Mary. I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. Did that was that important? Did I miss something in that? All right. I believe all scriptures God breathe. I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, inspires Anamadzo when He wants to use Anamadzo, and Kaleo when He wants to use Kaleo. And uh, and all scripture is God breathed and profitable, and God has a purpose for using each verb in each place. And if I fail to grasp the significance, then I need to study harder <laughs> to show myself approved because that which has been revealed belongs to us and our children forever. The secret things of the Lord belong to him. But that which has been revealed, Martha was named Martha, Mary was called Mary, that belongs to us. And uh, we're accountable to apply that which we've been given. All right, Mary. 
again, not a Greek word. It's a uh, Hebrew name coming through the uh, Aramaic, Maria or Mariam. Uh, they're pretty evenly split in the New Testament um, in terms of their spelling. Some that just leave it without the M, some that put the M on the end. But M-A-R-I-A or M-A-R-I-A-M, Maria or Mariam, uh, in the Strong's numbers, uh, Strong just gave them the same number. 3137 applies to either, whether you're encountering a Maria or a Mariam in the text. It comes from the Hebrew and the Aramaic, Miriam. Miriam, M-I-R-Y-A-M, Miriam. And, um, of course, Miriam was very famous in the Old Testament as the sister of Moses and Aaron. And so you have kind of a, a trinity there with Moses and Aaron and their sister, uh, Miriam. And she had a, a leadership function among the women in the, in the Exodus uh, with the singers and the musicians and the tambourine players and the dancers and the worship of what took place. Now, uh, there, uh, there are six New Testament Marys, or possibly seven, if in fact um, this Mary and Martha is the same as the Mary and Martha in John 11 and John 12, then you've got six Marys. If uh, they're different, then you've got seven Marys and you've got two Marthas. Um, pretty much, though, it's for whatever reason, commentators are. are by and large, supportive of the idea that they're one and the same, that you match up these sisters with the sisters in John 11 and John 12. What was she doing? She was not welcoming. She was not focused on the hospitality. She was focused on the ministry. She was seated for Bible class. And uh, kathedzo is to sit. You've got a compound here with para, kathedzamai. And that's kind of a mouthful. Para, P-A-R-A, kathedzamai, K-A-T-H-E-Z-O-M-A-I. Para kathedzamai. Now, kathedzo is to sit. And... Um, Sitting is, uh, there's a lot of verses that apply to it, but this uh, compound verb is unique to this verse right here. The only place in the New Testament you're going to find it, parakathedzamai. And para, remember para is your alongside uh, prefix, like parakaleo, paraklesis. Anyone that thinks they have the gift of paraclete, of paraklesis, meaning you come alongside, you call to your side. And a paraclesis, a paraclete, is someone who calls somebody alongside and puts an arm over their shoulder and encourages them, comforts them, exhorts them, even rebukes them if that's what's necessary. But the paracleo is the alongside ministry. Well, this is not a alongside ministry. This is alongside sitting. All right, sitting alongside. Uh, literally beside, and then the object, his, uh, his feet. She is beside his feet. And uh, there are other expressions as well. For example, uh, the Apostle Paul is very um, proud of the fact, and he, he boasts in it and celebrates it, that he, as a child, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. See? And that was a way to say, when you sit at the feet of somebody, that you identify with that particular teacher, you identify with that uh, spiritual leader, 
not only uh, humble before them in receiving the content of what they have to say, but even identifying with them as your rabbi, as your didaskalos, as your teacher. All right. And uh, this is uh, an aspect that uh, Paul spoke of on a couple of different occasions, always with fondness and yet also with the added testament to the fact that um, that even at the feet of these great teachers, he was not brought to the personal Christ. All right. And so the secular education that he had, even though it was the finest of his day, uh, he says, throw that out compared to knowing Christ. All right, compared to knowing Christ. Well, sitting at the feet of... Here's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. And uh, what an opportunity. I mean, how many times is the Son of God going to come to your town <laughs> on His way to the cross to lay down His life on behalf of, uh, of, of humanity? I mean, uh, limited opportunities to, uh, to sit at Jesus' feet. Now, this was the place to be as far as the rabbis were concerned. In fact, this was, this was a dream, to be able to sit at a rabbi's feet, to sit at a learned scholar's feet and to glean what he has learned. I mean, this is like the, the uh, If I Were a Rich Man song in, in Fiddler on the Roof. Tevye's vision, I mean, if, if, he, if he was rich, then he'd have leisure time. He wouldn't be milking the cows and making his deliveries and all with this, you know, waste of time called work all day long because he'd be able to sit and listen to the rabbis hours every day. What a privilege. What a blessing. Now, in the Mishnah, this is spoken of, and uh, I underlined it to make it a little link here, and we can actually pull it up on the screen for you. Yose ben Yozer of Seradah and Yose ben Yohanan of Jerusalem received from them. And Yose, this is in a, a line of tradition of, of different rabbis uh, and who they received it from and who they received it from and who they received it from. Um, and they had this mythology, they had this uh, um, <laughs> legend, tradition, that they had a uh, chain of teachers, of rabbis and scholars and teachers and so forth, that went back to Moses. See? It's, and, and this is the same kind of insanity that pops up in the Roman circles with apostolic succession, of course, uh, you know, ordained by so-and-so, ordained by so-and-so, ordained by so-and-so, going all back to Peter. All right? And to a, in the Roman priesthood, of course, you have uh, your ordination has value. You're vested with a priestly uh, office and the, uh, the, the superpowers I talk about where you can turn wafers into the actual body of Christ and you can turn wine into the blood of Christ and the, uh, you can perform the consecrations for weddings and you can do the last rites, uh, mumbo jumbo and stuff like that. Well, you only receive those superpowers if you have the apostolic succession going back to Peter. All right, that's their priesthood. See, so you know, my ordination uh, at the hands of Ralph Braun doesn't count for anything in the in the Roman priesthood. I don't have the apostolic succession going back to Peter. See, and uh, Cliff's ordination coming up here is going to be just as worthless because uh, you know. <laughs> All right, but you see, here's the chain: Moses, and then on down, and so you get to these guys. 
Yosei ben Yozer of Sarada and Yosei ben Yohanan of Jerusalem. They received it from them. And, and here's what they have to say. Yosei ben Yozer, and I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, uh, says, um, let your house be a gathering place for sages. In other words, it's an honor. If, you, if your household gets to become the venue for rabbis, for wise men, for sages, if, if, if they're in your living room discussing the deep things of the Torah or the Talmud or, or what have you, then that's a, a high mark of esteem compared to your friends, your neighbors, your other people in your village and so forth because yours was the house selected for scholars, for sages. It was a, it was a note of distinction. Let your house be a gathering place for sages and wallow in the dust of their feet. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're literally right there at their feet, uh, well, it's kind of nasty and, and well, you get to wash them, you get to wipe them, you get to, you know, clean them up and hopefully their feet don't smell too bad or what have you. But it's an honor. <gasps> I, get I washed his feet. Oh, my goodness. Rabbi so-and-so, oh my goodness. You know, and then when the, when, the, when, the, when the group leaves town, and it's the talk of the town for days, weeks, months afterwards, Rabbi, you know, know-it-all was here. Oh my goodness, did you, did you know he was in our village? And it's a mark of honor. and it's a, You get to boast over the village next to you because he came to your village. So that gives you bragging rights over the next village, Right? And then within your village, he came into our house. That gives you the pride over every other house in that village. See, And then not only was he in your house, but of all the family members in your house, of all the household occupants, of all the folks who could have been there, the one who got to sit at the very feet and, and wash the feet and wallow in the dust, that was the pinnacle. I mean, right there, that, that was it. Wallow in the dust of their feet. Drink in their words with gusto. I mean, man, just hang on those words. Worship the guy. Everything he says, oh my goodness. Can you believe it? Now, that's, uh, that's uh, Yosef ben Yosef. There were, there were others. Yosef ben Yohanan highlighted hospitality, but he, uh, he thought it was good to bring in the poor. And I like this. Let uh, your house be wide open and seat the poor at your table. Make members of your household. And don't talk too much with women. <laughs> all right? Uh, you're not laughing. Laugh with me here, all right? Yeah. This is, this is okay, though, because, see, this is what I want to illustrate and what we're going to take the time to illustrate. Jesus was a radical, absolutely radical, for Mary to be sitting there. Not only, Mary wasn't the only one with her nose, uh, Martha was not the only one that day uh, bent out of shape. Everybody else in that room was just like Martha. Get that woman out of here. She needs to be in the kitchen with her sister. There's doctrine being taught here, and that woman has no place. Okay? As the rest of this goes on here with, with uh, Yosef ben Yohanan, don't talk too much with women. See, that just gets you in trouble. He spoke of a man's wife. All the more so is the rule to be applied to the wife of one's fellow. 
Now, he was talking about his own wife. Don't talk too much to women, meaning your own wife will get you into trouble. Also, your buddy's wife, the wife of one's fellow. In this regard, did sages say, so long as a man talks too much with a woman, one, he brings trouble on himself, two, he wastes time better spent on studying the Torah. Think about it. If you, know, if you, if you took ten minutes tomorrow talking to your wife about something, you just wasted ten minutes. You could have been studying the Torah. Tongue in cheek, all right? I'm not, I'm not advocating this. I'm just letting you know this was the mindset. This was the mindset. And for Jesus to let Mary sit at his feet? The third thing, uh, he ends up an heir of Gehenna. He ends up a, an heir of Gehenna. In other words, it's kind of like some folks today. You know, uh, folks that I've encountered that you wonder, hmm, you know what? I mean, this is a, a classic. <sighs> he was never saved in the first place. He must never have even been saved. Because, look at that. He's wasting his time talking to a woman. Oh, my goodness. Well, clearly he's not of the elect. Clearly he was never saved in the first place. He's going to be an heir of Gehenna. All right. Well, this gives you a flavor for it then. You know, I, I've encountered way too many people that have doubted people's salvation way too frequently. All right? And uh, be careful with that. Now, this uh, Mary was sitting beside Jesus' feet, listening to his word. Remember, when he sent out these disciples... He gave them instructions regarding hospitality, but he also gave them instructions about finding more disciples. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest. And so now here's Martha. She's got a handle on the hospitality. Here's Mary approaching the aspect of workers for the harvest, sitting at his feet, taking in Bible class. Martha's got a problem with it, and, I, and like I say, I don't think she was the only one. Uh, we don't have recorded here what any of the men present might have thought about Mary sitting there. We know uh, on another occasion when uh, a different woman, a, sin, a sinful woman, a prostitute, was wiping his feet and, and uh, washing his feet and so forth in, in a Pharisee household, um, that they were, they were uh, horrified at that, at that episode too. Now, this was the place to be as far as the rabbis were concerned, but it was not available to women as a rule. As a rule, it was not available to women. A woman's place was not in Bible class. Okay? Um, any, anything as far as the law was concerned, she would learn from her mother, from older women. Um, she wasn't going to learn from the rabbis. She wasn't going to learn from any teachers. Uh, the rabbis were there to teach the men. And that's what it was about. Now, the uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament has an article on women. And that's what we'll focus on. This, is, this thing is 20 pages long. I'm going to focus on one aspect of it. It's, in, uh, it's a multi-volume set over there on the shelf. And if you want to pull it off and read it for yourself, you can get the whole thing. It's in volume one. 
uh, gune, uh, G-U-N-E is the term gune for, uh, for women. All your gyno uh, prefixed words in English come from the Greek gune. All right. Um, anyway, there's, there's, uh, I'm going to skip over the parts of this that apply to uh, the Greek world and Hellenism, Rome. Uh, you've got the Greek view on women. You've got the Roman view on women. doesn't pertain in this chapter because this chapter is focused on the Jewish view of women, uh, Mary and Martha being Jewish women and this being a Jewish context. All right, this is Kittle's work here on women. In spite of certain rather doubtful relics of matriarchate, woman was legally more a chattel than a person in Israel. Um, this is, this is, you got to understand this in Old Testament times. By the medieval era, things had flipped a bit. And uh, to this day, in modern Israel, in, in modern Jewish understanding today, your Jewishness is dependent on your mother, not your father. If you are born of a Jewish woman, you are racially Jewish, as far as modern-day Judaism is concerned. Uh, but this aspect of the matriarchal line um, happened long after the Old Testament, even, even the New Testament era. Uh, at this time, a woman was more a chattel, chattel than a person in Israel. In other words, property. A mark of wealth like sheep, goat, oxen, livestock. In marriage, she passed from the dominion of her father to that of the husband to whom he gave her in marriage. A woman was always, always, always under a male authority, under a father's authority until such time as she was entrusted to her husband's authority. See, examples of that and other aspects. In the process, such matters as the dowry played a part. If her husband died or she was put away, she came under the protection of her grown-up son or of her own family. We look at this a little bit in our study on widows here in First Timothy. Leveret marriage could be rejected by the man concerned, but not by the woman. Interestingly enough, when you go into Deuteronomy 25 and you look at that. Rest was made a duty for all on the Sabbath, except who doesn't get to take the Sabbath off? Yeah. There's still household work. There's still food to prepare. There's still, you know, when you get, when you get a day off kind of a thing, see, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, so forth. Um, in every respect, the husband was her Lord. In keeping with Genesis 3.16, uh, the curse of, of the woman, the curse of the man, and so forth, yet uh, he would have dominion over her. He determined her portion at the sacrificial meal. Fidelity was demanded of her alone. <laughs> in other words, the husband could have multiple wives in polygamy or concubines in addition to wives in in that and uh you know how do you what is your outlook to faithfulness if the man has four wives right because we, how do you define faithfulness that we i guess he's faithful to the group right faithful to the party of four or what have you okay the woman though is faithful to the one man and that's the nature of the uh, of the society. The fidelity was demanded to her alone, although he, the husband had to avoid adultery, that is, the non-marital polygamy adultery. Betrothal was equivalent to marriage. Verses on that. 
Uh, polygamy was a heavy burden on the wife. Above all, if she did not enjoy the blessing of children, and especially sons, she occupied an unenviable position in relation to the more fortunate wives or concubines. And that's played out in the birth of Samuel, because Samuel's mother had not yet given any children, and uh, her husband had another wife who had given him sons, and, and that uh, put her in a bad spot. She was particularly lucky if she did not forfeit the affection of her husband in consequence. In fact, there's even, you know, the, the rivalry between Sarah and Hagar, and then there's all the politics involved with Jacob and his four wives, and even the sisters that were bargaining for um, uh, bedroom time with, with their husband. All right. There were, however, more favorable aspects. <laughs> all right, but wait, there's good news. Wives and girls could appear publicly at, in everyday life. Actually, that was. A little bit unusual compared to the pagan cultures around Israel. All right. Um, in the pagan nations around Israel, uh, women were featured in the religious services only insofar as they were the, uh, the, the, the harlots, the, the sacred uh, priestesses in the fertility rituals. So Israel at least was family friendly in their worship. In that families came together for their uh, to bring their offerings into the temple to take part in the feasts and the uh, festivals, the observances, and so forth. So uh, wives and girls could appear publicly in everyday life at festivals and on sacral occasions. Where there were no sons, the daughters had rights of inheritance. That goes all the way back to Moses and in the wilderness experience there, uh, detailed in Numbers 27. In these and even in other cases, the inclination and will of the girl could also be consulted in marriage. The question, will you go with this man that was given to Rebecca? And she said, I will go. All right. So even though the fathers were arranging the terms of the contract and they were arranging for the, the price to be paid and the stipulations and all of that, uh, it was still in the father's sovereignty to uh, arrange these marriages. Um, it was still a feature that, on occasion at least, uh, the girl's desires were uh, consulted the woman had almost incalculable influence, especially when she had sons and when she could act uh, adroitly. And then, of course, many of these stories, Sarah, Rebecca, Michael, Abigail, and Jezebel, even. A woman like Deborah can even attain to an extraordinary position in public life. Uh, let me skip on down here now. This is all in the Old Testament era now. The basic biblical tradition which emphasizes the secondary position of woman by creation and her greater susceptibility to temptation also shows a fine and profound appreciation of her position as the helpmeet of man, of her divine likeness, even if only by derivation, and of the close relationship of the one man and the one woman. All right, now I'm going to dispute quite a bit of that too in terms of greater susceptibility to temptation. That's not the point there, but... That's, uh, that's what Kittle wrote. Now, that's in Old Testament times. Okay, now let's get to Judaism, and I'm out of time, so we'll just have to tease you with this and come back to it next week. In Judaism, okay? Now, what happens in Judaism? What happens in between Old Testament and New Testament? What happens is Israel is carried away to Babylon in captivity. Their temple is destroyed. They have no more of the animal rituals, sacrifices, the priesthood, all of that. While they were in captivity, they developed a system of Torah study. 
synagogues start popping up. They can't go to the temple and offer an animal, but they can get into a house where a sage, a scholar, a scribe, a Pharisee, somebody who knows something about the Torah, about the Bible, can teach a Bible class. All right, And so you have the beginnings of what would become rabbinic Judaism. And it involves more of a reaction than progress. Under Judaism, woman is openly despised. Happy is he whose children are males, and woe to him whose children are females. That's a quote. This was the attitude under Judaism. And we're talking about the intertestamental period on into the first century when Jesus Christ was walking this earth. This was the prevailing mindset. This is, again, back to Fiddler on the Roof. Five daughters. And the visitor from Kiev said, five? To which Tevye replies, daughters. Okay, remember that? I'm going to watch that movie tonight. I'm putting myself in a Fiddler on the Roof mood. Okay. Women are greedy, inquisitive, lazy, and vain. That's a quote to which another rabbi adds frivolous. <laughs> so you have one rabbi here. Uh, this is the Genesis uh, rabbah. This is the, the Midrash commentary on Genesis uh, in making a commentary on Genesis 16.5 points out that women are greedy, inquisitive, lazy, and vain. Uh, it gets uh, supplemented in another uh, tractate. Uh, with the addition of the term frivolous. Ten cob. I don't know how much a cob is. Let's just say ten gallons. All right, ten quarts. Um, Ten cob of empty-headedness have come upon the world. Nine having been received by women. (laughs) And one by the rest of the world. (laughs) All right. We can update this. You know, there's, there's ten kinds of stupid in the world today. And women gave us nine of them. I'm glad you're all relaxed. What a great relaxed mental attitude this morning. And you see, I'm, I'm reading this, right? You see the words are on the screen. I didn't make any of this up. There's even a proverb. Hillel. Remember Hillel? Dominant, dominant rabbi, Pharisee. Uh, generation before, uh, before Paul, before Gamaliel. Um, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, Gamaliel sat at the feet of Hillel. All right? Dominant, dominant power in, in Jewish uh, traditions. His proverb, many women, much, rich, much witchcraft. <laughs> all right, well, uh, that's all I've got time for today. Uh, we'll come back because Martha is in the kitchen. Mary is in Bible class, and that's a problem for a lot of folks. Uh, Mostly it's a problem for Martha, and that's what the Lord's going to address, because Martha was off track, and he has a a, a rebuke in grace, in kindness, that um, there are many things you can get worked up about. There's one thing that matters, and... um, Martha had it wrong, Mary had it right, and that's what we'll have to get to next week. Thank you, Father, for this day. Uh, Father, again, as we just saw, there are many things in this world to get worked up about, but there's only one thing that matters. And, Father, we thank you for that. I pray as a nation, 
that uh, believers with a, a divine viewpoint perspective might be able to illustrate that there are many things in this world to get worked up about, but there's only one thing that matters. And I pray, Father, we would keep our focus on the person and glory of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we on this day be your fellow workers in bringing him the maximum glory and pleasure. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.